rather than the pandemic opening up a transformation of our schools to being more holistic and supportive and welcoming environments. Instead, we're seeing an intensification of some of the same kinds of discipline and policing practices that have sent young people on the road from a school to jail before. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. The school-to-prison pipeline refers to the phenomenon of criminalizing what was once routinely handled as student discipline. Over one and a half million students attend schools with police but no counselors. Students with disciplinary infractions are now being sent into the criminal justice system instead of to guidance counselors or principals. In schools where there are police, also known as school resource officers or SROs, students are five times more likely to be arrested and charged. In response, there's been a national campaign to end the presence of police in schools, including in Vermont, where several school boards, including Burlington, have recently voted to end their police contracts. The school-to-prison pipeline has now spawned a new variant, the pandemic-to-prison pipeline. Professor Mark Warren and Jonathan Stith argue that during COVID schooling, schools are responding to a student mental health crisis with harsh discipline that has fallen hardest on students of color. Mark Warren is Professor of Public Policy and Public Affairs at UMass Boston and the author of the new book, Willful Defiance, The Movement to Dismantle the School-to-Prison Pipeline. Jonathan Stith is the National Director of the Alliance for Educational Justice and Co-Director of the National Campaign for Police-Free Schools. I began by asking Professor Warren to explain the pandemic-to-prison pipeline. So, you know, the pandemic has really caused a lot of trauma and a lot of stress, economic hardship, family loss for young people, disruption of schooling. And, uh, you know, young people are coming back to school in those kinds of conditions. And instead of getting a support, an investment of support, what we've been starting to see is the, the uh, intensification of discipline practices in school and policing practices in schools. So if, if minor incidents break out of uh, fights or things that have to do with just the social emotional state of, of teenagers and young people at this point, instead of you know, seeking for you know, restorative kinds of practices and things that would really help build a strong school community, instead police are being called in and there are renewed calls for policing in schools. And so uh, that's why we're calling it the uh, pandemic to prison pipeline rather than pandemic opening up a transformation of our schools to being more holistic and supportive and welcoming environments. Instead, we're seeing an intensification of some of the same kinds of discipline and policing practices that have sent young people on on the road from a school to jail before. Uh, Jonathan, you've described in this latest article about the response to the racial justice movement following the George Floyd murder that there has now been a white lash. Um, what are the different aspects of that? Yeah, one of the, I think one of the things that we've seen um, in this kind of return uh, has been the, the again, the kind of sensationalization and criminalization of young people's mental health crisis in this returning under pandemic. Again, as Mark talked about, kind of year three learning under a pandemic for like the high school students that we organize with, like that's most of their high school experience, right? We're, um, and so what we're seeing, particularly, I think we saw it most uh, clearly in the recent governor race here in Virginia, uh, where the 
again, the, these fights were kind of, they were making the news daily uh, and they were used then as a justification um, to call for the reinstatement of police in, in schools, particularly in Alexandria, Virginia, where one of our groups in the campaign, Tenants and Workers United, the young people there had uh, mounted a campaign that uh, removed policing from uh, their schools. And when they talk about what happened, it was basically um, black and brown students in the meeting with angry white parents who were calling for, again, the end of mass mandates and a return to policing uh, in schools. And so we kind of really began to understand uh, what we saw in Virginia, we're also seeing in other parts of the country. Again, it's kind of lifting up these fights um, that are happening in the schools as a means to call for, for more policing um, and, and justifying the further criminalization of black and brown students. That's interesting. I mean, you know, we see these anti-mask protests at school board meetings. This has become, you know, almost a daily occurrence that will people are sharing videos of parents out of control but the other part is less visible the link between that and the calling for crackdowns on students and particularly students of color what is the connection do you think jonathan yeah i i mean i we think it's a, a direct backlash to again the 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 gains that young people black brown young people in their communities gain under kind of after the george floyd uh murder and the decision around the, by the Minneapolis first university in uh, Minnesota board to sever its contract with Minneapolis police and then followed by the school board, again, kind of opened uh, a wave of, of school districts all across the country. I think our last count was 130 school districts ending their, their contracting with policing and uh, a direct link between uh, that, the Black Lives Matter movement and police free schools. And again, you know, when we think about when we reflect back to kind of all the protests were happening in D.C., one of the things that really had caught our attention is that somebody wasn't us had put up police free schools on the actual White House grounds as part of kind of the art in the, in the takeover. So um, I think what we've seen or experiencing is that our movement is now is, is tied to. Uh, Black Lives Matter and backlash that we've seen coming from Black Lives Matter now has been played out. I think it's also connected to these fights around critical race theory um, that has also been part of this the this kind of uh, what we've been calling this white lash um, kind of post the, the Trump uh, presidency. The attacks on critical race theory, we see that the new governor of Virginia, Youngkin, who was just elected, has just passed a law banning the teaching of critical race theory. And to my knowledge, critical race theory is not taught in Virginia public schools. It's very hard to fathom. So we're banning something that isn't happening. Jonathan, uh, enlighten us as to what you think the real force behind this is. Yeah, I mean, I think it feels like, a, again, a, yeah, just a return or, or a tightening of or a kind of like they were all in, in, in D.C. and now they've all returned back to their communities trying to figure out kind of what the what this the set of next uh, fights are. But it is a it is an interesting battle to be fighting around something that does not even exist. Right. Like most folks who do any kind of education justice would say that there is no critical race theory taught in schools. And it's kind of these fighting of these shadows that are kind of really distracting us from. I think what Mark had opened up around kind of these real critical issues around the how untransformed our schools are 
And again, part of what we would say is part of a, a right wing agenda and, and kind of the remounting of their fight back through these kind of sets of issues. Mark Warren, in your new book, Willful Defiance, you you talk about the many ways that black students are far more likely than white students to be suspended, expelled and arrested um, for people who are not familiar with the basics of that literature around the school to prison pipeline just explain what you understand of uh, the risks posed by police and schools and the kind of discipline that is meted out to students of color on a routine basis right yeah i think that a lot of people don't really understand you know a lot of people who um maybe live in more whiter, more affluent communities, don't really understand what is happening in the schools that are serving you know, or are supposed to be serving a low-income students of color, particularly black and brown students in this country. And, you know, starting in the 90s, as chart in the book, Willful Defiance, there was a rise of zero tolerance discipline policies in our schools and a rise of armed security guards and police in our schools. You know, prior to the 90s, there are only about 100 uh, police officers in any uh, schools across the country. By the early 2000s, there were 16,000 police officers or armed security guards in our schools. Prior to the 90s, you know, there were some students were suspended, but it was usually for very egregious uh, conduct. But starting in the 90s, as part of, you know, what Michelle Alexander has called the new Jim Crow, the rise of mass criminalization in our society, this same kind of zero tolerance attitude was taken into our schools and students started to be suspended for things like willful defiance, what we call the title of the book. So if you're not wearing your, your cap on the right way, you refuse to take your hat off or you challenge the uh, textbook that you're being taught in your history class because it's published in Texas and you don't think it's reflecting the history of your community, well, then you're being willfully defiant or disrupting schools or willfully disruptive. And every year, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of students, uh, mainly black and brown students, and those with disabilities are being suspended every year for things like willful defiance. And, and it, once young students are suspended once, they're more likely to spend it again and then more likely to end up uh, failing to graduate from high school. And that puts these students, uh, particularly, as I said, African-American, Latinx students on the road to prison. If you are a, a black man in this country without a high school degree, your chance of ending up in prison at some point in your life is two thirds. So in other words, two thirds of all black men without a high school degree in this country end up in prison in one, at one point in their lives. One third are in prison at any one time. I mean, these are staggering numbers. And at the same time, there is no evidence at all that the presence of police in schools actually makes schools safer. On the other hand, they, uh, <clears throat> they are often the roots to students having their first interaction with the criminal justice system. In fact, we say in the book, uh, mass incarceration starts in school. It's the place that many, many young people, particularly black and brown youth, have their first experience with police and are often arrested right in school and sent into the criminal justice system. And what we are saying is that you know, this, there has to be a transformation in this. This, this is affecting hundreds of thousands of, of average good kids who are often doing normal teenage behavior. And instead of being treated with humanity and respect, it's part of a system of discipline and control. Um, and that is, it is it's keeping uh, our communities, 
uh, either in prison, poor, and lacking in democratic rights, often when they end up out of prison, still with a criminal record. Jonathan, you mentioned about the mental health crisis among young people now during the pandemic um, and how this is being met with not more school counselors, but more school police. Um, can you say a little bit more about what you understand of this mental health crisis, particularly in communities of color? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, I mean, one, we're, I think we're all under, uh, <laughs> under uh, some kind of mental health crisis. Again, uh, us, all of us trying to adjust and it has felt like, you know, in the conversation and dialogue, young people have been left out, um, particularly left out, have been black and brown young people in the conversation. Um, and what we know before uh, the pandemic was that many of the schools that our young people uh, attended were under-resourced, um, uh, kind of over-policed as, as kind of the uh, the saying goes, and didn't have even the really kind of the right set of things to welcome students or keep students safe uh, under COVID. Now they are returning to schools that are untransformed, that the discipline is tighter. They haven't seen each other for three years, trying to learn with a mask on, probably still trying to teach to the test <laughs> under under these conditions. So there's a, just a tremendous amount of pressure, what we're hearing again from young people um, in cities that even won police-free schools. Again, I think this was the case what we heard in Alexandria is that the mental health supports never appeared. They won a counseling, a more counseling, more restorative justice, and those things haven't appeared. What has appeared has been more policing. Um, that is, that's what they've seen as has been the response to uh, this crisis. And again, the call for mental health supports from from Black and Brown students and even white students is not a new call, right? I think one of the transformative moments around. Um, Stoneman Douglas was the call of those students um, and the March for All Lives calling for mental health supports and not calling uh, for policing as an answer. And what did we see? We saw school districts again throw billions of dollars into policing as the only solution. And so again, we find ourselves at a moment where again, young people are crying out all over the country. The majority of public uh, students, uh, school students in public schools are black and brown students crying out for a different response from school systems, and they're getting again being met with harsh punitive punishment and policing, which is the one in the same. I'm being redundant. <laughs> you know, Mark, this term "willful defiance"—that's the title of your book. There have been instances in Los Angeles, for example, where that term—and also, you have to really marvel at that term "willful defiance," as any parent knows. Uh, describes normal teenage behavior, uh, one might say healthy teenage behavior in some many instances. Um, but where this term is removed as a reason for school discipline, as I believe has been done in Los Angeles and other places, what happens? Right. So, you know, I think that uh, we've been talking about, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the problem and the depth of the school to prison pipeline. But this book, and actually Jonathan uh, himself as an organizer, is really involved in a movement that has really worked to, to challenge and dismantle the system. And there have been important, uh, really important victories in this movement. So you mentioned one of them uh, in Los Angeles, a coalition of youth organizing groups supported by parent organizing 
groups uh, won a change in the school discipline policy in Los Angeles in 2013, and they eliminated, eliminated willful defiance as a cause for suspension. Prior to that, every year, 75,000, uh, there were 75,000 lost days of instruction due to suspensions for willful defiance. And within a few years of the passage of this change in discipline policy, that number had dropped to 5,600. So that is a really dramatic change. And we've seen this, and then it was passed, a uh, coalition formed to pass uh, a change in uh, the state law in uh, California, banning uh, suspensions for willful defiance, uh, first from K to three, and then extended up to eighth grade. And we have seen suspensions across the state of California drop, uh, I think by 46% since then. So, uh, you know, it is possible to, uh, to really challenge these discipline policies to, uh, and to change them. And that is the work that I think a lot of organizing groups are, have been doing. And now the new frontier in that is the removal of police from schools, as we've been talking about. Well, Jonathan, talk about the movement to remove police from schools, to change standards of school discipline. Uh, where do we find this movement and what are some of the indicators of its impact? Absolutely. Um, we, I, th I think the, well, so there's the National Campaign for Police Free Schools, which is a, a kind of national network of about 30 campaigns that are leading efforts like we talked about in Los Angeles and Oakland. Um, and many of them are in, in different phases. Groups that are that have won, like the Black Organizing Project in Oakland, um, are in the kind of impl implementation transforming stage. And like we've been saying, winning police free schools, winning the removal or ending the contract um, with policing is just the beginning of the struggle for police free schools. And that our call is to really look at how we dismantle school policing infrastructure, culture and practice, how we end demilitarization of our schools student and ending student surveillance and building towards a liberatory education. And so groups are uh, in various stages. Um, some groups who were not able to, to achieve police-free schools, uh, kind of this last opening are remounting, rebuilding their efforts, particularly in New York City. Uh, we'll, we'll be seeing some, some, some fights. And then also I think across the South where we see, we've been in contact with groups who've been really trying to figure out how to build uh, new campaigns around police-free schools. I think there's more work to be done at the federal level. Now, as we've seen, the return of, of, of students to school have led to a return of what we call assault acts. And this is when a school resource officer hurts a student for any reason. In December, before school ended, there were eight assaults across the country by a school resource officer, uh, by, um, by a school resource officer against a student. Um, we most recently had the deaths of students, Mona Rodriguez uh, in, in California, most recently 18-year-old uh, Fanta Bitley, I hope I'm saying their name right, uh, eight-year-old who was again killed by uh, SRO uh, at the school site. Both of these incidents trying to break up fights, right? This very thing that we're calling police in to do, they're, it is, they're killing our students uh, in their response. And so we see groups, again, kind of organizing around uh, trying to stop the assault that's happening, again, waging these transformative campaigns to try to change schooling uh, practice and culture. Um, and then we have the kind of the other practices around kind of restorative justice and transformative justice. 
which the young people call kind of youth sanctuary strategies. And they're really into how do they create safety for themselves that is not reliant on the state, not reliant on policing. And that is, again, a lot of the stuff that we've seen around uh, restorative justice, circle holding, peacekeeping, and really figuring out for themselves, how can they build peace uh, with each other in their schools for the sake of its transformation and winning police free schools. So uh, folks should check out the website, policefreeschools.org for again, a, a list of all the amazing organizing that's happening across the country. Mark, I'm curious, you know, you mentioned there is no research-based evidence that the presence of police improves safety in schools. Th that's pretty astonishing because the conventional wisdom is that having a, a an officer in uniform and with a weapon keeps the peace. But you say there's nothing to indicate that. No, actually, there isn't. There's, there's no evidence for it. Uh, and, you know, even I think people even see that in, in the case of the you know mass school shootings. In many of those cases, there have been armed police officers or security officers on those campuses. And that didn't prevent the shootings from happening. But that's the other side of the coin here is that part of the call for the presence of police came as a result of some of these, uh, you know, a, a really tragic cases of school shootings. But these school shootings typically occur in uh, whiter rural or, or ex-urban communities. And yet the presence of police was radically escalated in our urban communities serving black and brown students, wh wh which are not the sites of uh, school shootings. And so then the question is, well, what are these police doing in those schools? And it turns out when people have done the research that the vast majority of what they're doing is being called in by teachers and administrators to handle, you know, what again are minor behavioral issues. I mean, the, the, one of the, 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 the famous cases that got the uh, really, that really fueled the police free schools movement was the assault at Spring Valley uh, where a black, uh, where a police officer assaulted uh, Shakira, a black uh, high school student girl, for allegedly refusing to to hand in her cell phone to a teacher. How is that a criminal offense? How is a police officer being called into a classroom because a student refuses to hand over, even if she did, refuses to hand over uh, their uh, cell phone to their teacher? And yet, that is the vast majority of what police officers are doing in our schools. And then that often leads to uh, cases of police uh, violence or stopping students. At the, uh, another case in Philadelphia, which I know Jonathan can speak to, a member of the Alliance for Educational Justice who was stopped in the hall uh, because he didn't have a pass to go to the bathroom and assaulted by a security guard and police officer. So this is what's happening. And instead, what we find is that... Uh, when people do study this, the impact of having police in schools is that it increases uh, the chance of students being arrested and ending up in the juvenile justice system because police are in school interacting with students over a minor of behavioral issues. Jonathan, we just have a minute left, and I wonder if we could uh, finish by talking about the alternatives to criminalization, the efforts at restorative or transformative justice that have been put in place instead of police? Yeah, I think, I mean, again, I think, you know, a lot of times folks ask what's the alternative. We already know 
what the alternative is. We've seen it in action. We know it works. And in, in many cases, those solutions have been stripped away from students. So really looking at the work that have been done by uh, um, Oakland Restorative Justice, uh, Oakland uh, Restorative Justice, our joy, um, Restorative Justice for Oakland Youth, uh, as an example, again, we're in schools. Uh, Chicago, at one point, as a school system, had a robust uh, restorative justice system that was, again, creating and generating peace. Again, as there's so much research out there that talks about um, how the environment is positively impacted by these practices um, that there, there should be no um, real question about the, the effectiveness of these, of these practices. And again, the only reason why they um, are in question was under the DeVos administration, they were blamed for Stoneman Douglas, right? This, this re restorative justice program that the young person was never in. So we understand that the solutions uh, to the problem of policing already exist. They're in the, in the hearts and minds of students. They've already had practices that have won that have shown that these are effective ways to create safety that don't involve policing. And I always like to, to ground us uh, in the vision of a young person, George Carter III out of New Orleans, who we lost to intercommunal violence. And he always talked about schools that had mood detectors instead of metal detectors, schools that had strawberry gardens instead of suspension rooms. And we can understand that as the fundamental vision of young people around what school safety looks like and what they are imagining. Um, this can guide us towards the solutions that make um that will make a difference and, and again, generate real safety in our community and for our students. Well, Jonathan Stith and Mark Warren, I wanna thank you both for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all programs at vtdigger.org slash Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.